Hi everyone. Thank you for letting us into your space today. We just want to let you know we have a lot going on. So please feel free to check our website in the coming up page. See what's happening at our church these days. Also be sure to like and subscribe to our channel and that way you can see more content that's rolling out. We hope you enjoy the message. It's really good to see you. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, We have just started a new series, and we're going through uh, the book in the Bible called 1 Corinthians. It's this letter that uh, Paul wrote to a group of Christians, a church in Corinth that he started, this ancient city of Corinth. And in this letter, there's tons of stuff. There is a lot going on. But in the next part of the letter that we're looking at today, it reminded me of something that I experienced in college. When I was in college, there was this one summer that I worked for a catering company, and we catered for weddings, and I was on the wait staff. So I would run back and forth from the kitchen, bringing out food, bringing back dirty dishes, serving wedding cake, pouring champagne, your typical wedding stuff. And because this is my job, I experienced a ton of weddings and experienced a lot of the wedding stuff over and over. Uh, The first dances, the cutting of the cakes. I heard a lot of good speeches. I heard a lot of really, really bad speeches. Um, Really bad. And it was weird over time towards the end of the summer uh, after experiencing so many of these things for this thing that is supposed to be so special um, for many people it's this once in a lifetime moment to feel so normal because it was an every week occurrence for me, for me. Weddings, all the wedding stuff was just a part of my job. It was a normal day at work. Except there was this one moment of one wedding that snapped me out of that uh, and kind of caught me off guard. We uh, were up in the mountains of Lyons, and there's this really nice venue. Uh, The reception was taking place in this ballroom with this really high ceiling and this grand staircase leading down into it. It was kind of fairy tale-esque a little bit. And uh, we, we served the food and there were speeches and they were okay, nothing special. And people were done eating, so I came out to start clearing plates. And while I was doing that, the MC announced that it was time for the first dance. And so the lights, they came down really low. And by this time, it was night, the sun had gone down, so there's no light coming through the windows. The only light was coming from these chandeliers hanging from the ceiling, casting this really soft, warm glow over everything. And the bride and the groom, they come together in the center of the room. And the song starts to play, and and they begin to dance. And 30 seconds into it, I caught myself just standing there watching with dirty dishes in my hands. I was just mesmerized because there was something about this first dance that felt different from all the others that I had seen. Normally, in a first dance, it feels a bit like a performance because that's what it is. Like you're performing for the sake of tradition and for everyone watching. It's just these two people dancing while everyone else is watching. And you can usually sense that awkwardness in the couple as they dance in front of all these people. 
And you can tell when they've been practicing, like they have this special move, like a spin or a dip or something, and everyone cheers and woos, and they look really proud of themselves. It's like, yeah, we did it. Um, you know, your, your normal wedding first dance. But this night, when the song started to play and the bride and the groom came together, they didn't have any special moves. And it wasn't a performance. They just held each other really close. And she rested her head on her shoulder and she closed her eyes and they danced as if they were the only people in the room. And as they danced, everyone else just started to disappear. And there was something about it that just felt so real and authentic and honest. But what stuck out to me wasn't just how they danced with each other, but the song that they were dancing to. They were dancing to this really beautiful song, but the song, if you listen to the lyrics, was about this dysfunctional on and off again relationship that was either on the verge of breaking up or they had already broken up. Uh, it was this really beautiful song, but it, it was by Coldplay. It's called The Scientist. And the chorus of the song goes, nobody said this was easy. It's such a shame for us to part. Nobody said this was easy. No one ever said this would be so hard. And there they were sharing their first dance to this song. Either this couple's really bad at choosing songs, or they chose a song that honestly reflected their relationship, and that was the most honest first dance I have ever seen and ever will see. Now, if that song was a good reflection of their relationship, I'm not sure it was wise for the two of them to get married. But the way that they danced with each other, it was as if they were saying, we know this is unwise, but we just can't help it. And what reminded me of that was in this next part of Paul's letter, it seems like what he's saying is that that's how Jesus feels about you too. So hold on to that. There's a little bit of context that we need to understand here. Uh, the city of Corinth, which is where this group of people that Paul's writing to, was located in a place that attracted a lot of people. If you look at this map, that will magically appear any moment now. Alakazam, there we go. Wow, timing of that was so good. Okay, uh, as you can see, so Corinth was in a place that attracted a lot of people. So you can see if anyone wanted to ship cargo from one side of Greece to the other, instead of wasting time and money and the risk of shipwreck by sailing around the bottom of Greece, what they would do is they would sail to the city of Corinth, walk across or carry the cargo across that tiny strip of land through the city, and then put it on a boat on the other side and, and send it on its way. So what that meant was, because of where Corinth was located, there were a lot of things and a lot of people passing through the city of Corinth. You can take that away. We don't need it anymore. Bye, map. Good to see you. Um, but what that also meant was there were a lot of new ideas and philosophies and religions that no one had ever heard of before passing through the city of Corinth. 
And what started to happen is the celebrities of the day were these wise philosophers who would explain these new ideas and philosophies and religions in these very exciting, intelligent, articulate, wise-sounding ways. People would pay money to come hear these people speak. Uh, Corinth kind of became this constant philosophical TED Talk competition to see who was the wisest. In that culture, in that day, there was nothing much more important than wisdom, than being wise. Now, in the city of Corinth, there was this church of Christians, this small group of people that was learning to follow the way of Jesus. And what started to happen is is members of that church began to teach about Jesus. And the culture and the competition of Corinth started to bleed into the church itself. And this competition and this argument began to stir up inside of this church about who was the wisest teacher of Jesus, who could articulate Jesus in the wisest, most exciting, intelligent sounding way. And what started to happen was the Christians of Corinth, they started to care less about what was being taught, and they cared more about how it was being taught and who was teaching it. Now, for assuming the best of the Christians of Corinth, maybe they felt this pressure from the city that they lived in. Maybe they felt like if anybody is going to pay any attention to Jesus and the things that they were teaching about him, they needed to figure out how to make it match up to these other wise, exciting philosophies and ideas being taught in Corinth. They needed to figure out how to teach Jesus in the most exciting and intelligent and wise-sounding way. So they needed to find the wisest teacher of Jesus. Have you ever been to a friend's birthday party, and your friend is kind of introverted, and you know what they really want is this calm, quiet, intimate gathering with just some of their closest friends, but maybe their family or their friends insisted on throwing them this huge party, and you show up, and it's fun, and it's exciting, and it's loud, and there's dancing, but your friend is off to the side feeling uncomfortable, and it's their birthday, Have you ever shown up to a family event, an anniversary, a quinceanera, graduation, a funeral? But the whole point of everyone getting together is entirely overshadowed by family drama. Have you ever watched two people plan their wedding together and they obsess over every detail, wanting everything to be perfect, and they're stressed, and they're overwhelmed, and they're fighting all the time? Have you ever experienced or witnessed anything like this and something inside you just wants to scream? You're missing the whole point of this. Paul hears about what's going on in Corinth for this church that he started a while back. And he writes to tell them, you're missing the whole point of this. While they are obsessing over every detail, trying to make this grand spectacle of Jesus, and they're arguing about who is the wisest teacher of Jesus, Jesus is off to the side, getting ignored. And Paul also points out that while they are arguing about who is the wisest teacher of Jesus, that the core message of Jesus has nothing to do with wisdom. In fact, you could argue that the core message of Jesus isn't wise at all. 
That's why he wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 23. He said, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Compared to these ideas and philosophies getting taught by these wise philosophers in front of paying crowds, the message of Jesus comparatively is kind of simple. It's this, God loves you. More than you can imagine. And I think we're all aware that death is a reality, but it was gonna be our ultimate end. We were in a really bad spot and it was kind of our fault. But because God loves you so much, he came as Jesus and Jesus died. But then he came back from death and by doing that, he broke death and we are rescued from it. It is not our ultimate end anymore. That's it. God loves you so much, he rescued you. And compared to everything else going on in Corinth, it was kind of simple. But it also wasn't very wise sounding either. Like conventional wisdom tells us that we should prioritize ourselves over others. And then if we have power, we should hold on to it. It's really useful. You can get stuff done with it. Protect yourself with it. It says you should hold others accountable for their actions. If you get hurt, you should hurt back. That makes sense. That's logical. That's rooted in reason. But Jesus did the opposite of that. He prioritized others instead of himself. He gave up the power that he had. He forgave us. He was willingly hurt for the people that were hurting him. That doesn't make sense. What Jesus did was not wise. But there is something that confounds wisdom. God loves you. The wisdom that Paul is contrasting everything against here is conventional wisdom, this wisdom that's rooted in logic and it's practical and and it's rooted in reason and and it makes sense. And so if we're talking about conventional wisdom here, let me ask you a question. Is it wise to love I don't know. Love makes us do some things that aren't really practical or really logical. But it seems like love has this power over wisdom. For example, is it wise to fall in love? We call it falling in love for a reason. You have to let go and lose control. Practically, is that wise? No. But when you're in love, does it make sense? It does. Is it wise to get married? You got to share all your stuff. 
There's a lot of heartache and conflict. You're promising to take care of another person no matter what. You can't make big decisions on your own anymore. Practically speaking, that is not wise. But when you're in love, does it make sense? Yes. Is it wise to invite your aging parents to come live with you? Maybe not. But when you love them, does it make sense? Is it wise to have kids? No. (laughs) Absolutely not. I am in the thick of it right now. It is a terrible financial decision. It's not good for your physical or your emotional health. But when I look at my kids, man, it makes all the sense in the world. Is it wise to sacrifice your life for another person? You're throwing everything away. But when you love them, what could stop you? Is it wise to share your first dance while in the background plays all the reasons why you shouldn't be married? No. But when I watched them dance, it made sense. One of the lines from that song went, I'm guessing in numbers and figures, pulling the puzzles apart, questions of science, science and progress don't speak as loud as my heart. Is it wise to love? No. But other than God himself, is there anything in the universe more powerful? which adds some color to verse 19, where God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. The Corinthians were arguing about who is the wisest teacher of Jesus, but the love of Jesus does not conform to conventional wisdom. But there is something more powerful than that. It's the simple fact that God loves you. To the world, that is foolish. That doesn't make sense. And it gets even more foolish when we look at not just how Jesus loves, but who he loves. There is another thing going on in the city of Corinth. Because all this cargo and all these people were passing through, Corinth started to get really wealthy. People were getting very rich and very powerful off of all this stuff passing through, and there was this other competition, not just for who is the wisest, but who is the richest, who is the most powerful. There's this competition for status. Archaeologists discovered in Corinth these monuments that people made for themselves. They didn't make it for someone else that they admired. They admired themselves so much, they built themselves a monument to say, look at me, I'm incredible. So because of that, It was really wise in Corinth to care about your reputation. You wanted to be associated with the right people, people who were important enough, acceptable enough. And you didn't want to be associated with the poor, the outcasts. You definitely didn't want to be assumed to be one of them. That wasn't a good idea. But once again, Jesus did the opposite of that. When he was here on earth, he spent most of his time with the lowest of the low of society, 
the people that you wouldn't want to be caught spending time around, the people that everyone else had assumed was abandoned by God, the sick, the broken, the criminals, the traitors, the embezzlers, the outcasts, the prostitutes, the poor, those were his people. But what's crazy is Jesus didn't just love them, but he became one of them. By giving what he had to the poor, he became poor. By standing up for the vulnerable, he became vulnerable. By giving up his power for the powerless, he became powerless. By associating with the outcasts, he became an outcast. The way he was killed proves it. Jesus died on a cross. And back then, crucifixion was this despicable form of execution reserved only for the lowest of the low of society. It was so gross and despicable that the upper class of society, they'd never even talked about crucifixion. It was too taboo. And in the same sense, they didn't talk about the people who were crucified either. Because if they were crucified, they weren't even worth talking about. Jesus... He didn't just love the lowest of the low, but he became one of them and he literally died next to them on the outskirts of the city where no one could see it happen. The way that Jesus lived and died and who he spent his time around made it crystal clear. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Nothing can change the fact that God loves you. Jesus spent his time with the least loved because they needed to hear it the most. God loves them. And this is really important for us to understand because it is easy for us to come up with a whole bunch of really wise reasons for why God shouldn't love us. Because of who you are, because of what you've done, because of what was done to you, because you don't love him because you keep leaving. You're too dysfunctional, too complicated. You're not easy to love. Or maybe there was some really wise and intelligent sounding person who told you some very logical reasons why God doesn't love you. Maybe they even used some Bible verses to do that. Well, here's some Bible verses for you. Verse 19 and 20. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? Let's say Jesus came today to start his ministry instead of thousands of years ago. If you think you're one of the last people that Jesus would want to see or speak to, you're probably one of the first doors that he would knock on. Excited to see you, tell you how he feels about you, to have dinner with you. There's this theologian named Jürgen Maltman, and he wrote, if anyone wants to become a Christian, don't send them into the churches. Send them into the slums, because that's where they'll find Christ. Jürgen Maltman, the guy who wrote that, He fought for the Nazis in World War II, and he was captured and taken to a prisoner of war camp. And that's where he met Jesus, because Jesus sent missionaries to that camp 
because he wanted them to know that he loves them too. You might think it's unwise for Jesus to love you, but Jesus says, this might be unwise, but I just can't help it. If you're comfortable, I want you to close your eyes for a minute. Just humor me. And some of you might remember me leading you through this before. But with your eyes closed, I want you to picture Jesus standing in front of you. I'll give you a minute to get that. Okay, if you've got that, now I want you to take a look at his face. Focus on his face. What is the look on his face when he looks at you? What is the look in his eyes when he looks at you? I'll give you another second to see that. Do you feel that? If you're looking at him and you see anything other than love in his eyes and on his face, you're looking at the wrong guy. That's not him. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Nothing can change the fact that he loves you. You can open your eyes if you want. Jesus died for you, not because it was wise, but because he loves you. And Jesus loves you, not because it's wise, but just because he loves you. The love of Jesus does not conform to conventional wisdom, but there is nothing more powerful than the simple fact that God loves you more than you could imagine. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians because they were losing sight of this. They were losing sight of the most important thing that grounds us, that changes everything. Look at verse 18 and 24 and 25. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Knowing that Jesus loves you is everything. It is the power of God that transforms you, that transforms everything. Knowing Jesus loves you is the power of God that turns the strength and the wisdom of the world upside down. When the world tells you that you're poor, his love says you couldn't be richer. When the world says that you're nothing, his love says to him, you're everything. When the world says there's no coming back from what you've done, His love says he'll carry you back on his shoulders. When the world says you're not enough, his love says enough isn't even the question. He just loves you. 
When the world says you failed, his love says it doesn't matter. When the world says you have no hope, his love says I've got you. When the world says to be selfish, his love says you're free now. You don't have to be. When the world says that there is strength in violence, his love says, look what sacrifice can do. When you're told that someone you love has died and you'll never see them again, his love says, death is not the end. I've rescued you. You'll see them again. We must not lose sight of this. It is everything. It's what grounds us. When our life is falling apart, when you're deconstructing everything that you've been taught and told, when people are saying things about you, when you've made a terrible mistake, when life is getting complicated and messy and noisy and loud, we must not forget God loves you. This is everything. I was thinking about this last weekend when we took communion together. And so I tried something I hadn't before. I got the bread and the cup and I sat down and I just sat for a long time and held it in my hands and focused on it. And the more that I held it and focused on it, the more it was clear, this is everything. There is nothing more than this. This is it. This is my whole being. He loves me. When I was in college, there was another summer that I worked at a summer camp in Canada, right next to Lake Winnipeg. It's this huge lake, water all the way to the horizon. And I discovered this bench right next to the lake. And there were many mornings that I woke up before everyone else did. And I sat on that bench next to the lake and spent time with God. And there was something really special about that place that I can't really explain. The veil just felt really thin there. And God and I had some really important conversations and shared some really important moments there. Uh, There's this reoccurring idea in movies and TV that maybe when we die, God brings us to a place that looks really familiar to just make the transition easier and help us debrief and process our life. I have no idea if that is true. But when I've seen that, I've wondered if that bench is the place that he would bring me to, if that's how it works. Anyway, when I get anxious or stressed or overwhelmed or discouraged or or just kind of lost, a lot of times I close my mind and I, I, I close my eyes and I picture myself walking towards that bench like I've done many times, except Jesus is already sitting on that bench. And, and I come around to the front of it and I sit down next to him and he doesn't do a thing. And he doesn't say a word. He's just there, smiling, looking out at the horizon with me. And that's more than enough. Somehow, that is everything. Just knowing that he is here and he loves me is everything. It always grounds me. It feels like it should be more complicated than this. It feels too simple. 
It doesn't seem very logical. It doesn't make sense. It feels unwise. It's like two people dancing with each other while in the background plays all the reasons why this is unwise. But Jesus says, this may be unwise, but I just can't help it. The love of Jesus does not conform to conventional wisdom, but there is nothing more powerful than the simple fact that God loves you more than you could possibly imagine. Would you stand with me so we can pray together? The past few weeks, we, we've been trying this practice out where before we jump in to saying anything to God or asking questions and listening or worshiping, we just create this open space for the Holy Spirit to speak and do whatever he wants to do. And the way that we've been doing this is just having this posture of receiving and praying this simple prayer of Holy Spirit, come. So that's what we're going to do right now. If you're comfortable with doing this, and if you're able to, would you just stand and hold your hands out in a posture of receiving? Sometimes we need to do with our body what our heart can't do on its own. And I'll just pray this prayer for us, and and we can just be open and wait. Holy Spirit, would you please come? The love of Jesus is the power of God that transforms everything, that transforms us, that turns the strength and the wisdom of the world upside down. But because this is love, Jesus doesn't force it on us. It is an invitation into something that needs to be received. It is something we need to surrender to if we want to experience And I wonder if there's anyone here where that's been a really difficult thing for you to do. And there's no shame in that. Opening ourselves up to the love of Jesus means being vulnerable. And maybe you've been vulnerable with somebody else before and you've gotten really hurt and it's hard for you to do that again. Opening ourselves up to the love of Jesus kind of means admitting that we need help. And maybe for whatever reason, that's hard for you to do too. It means admitting we're not perfect. Maybe that's hard for you to do. Maybe it just doesn't seem logical or make sense and you feel like you don't deserve this. And so you've been pushing it away. 
Or maybe you feel like it needs to be earned. And you've just been striving and pushing and doing everything that you can to be perfect and and you're not there yet. You don't deserve it yet. Maybe there are some of us here where it's just been really hard to be open to his love for you. If that's you, there's no better time than now to just be honest with him about that, to just admit that. He already knows, and he is patient, and he is loving with you. There's no better time than now to maybe surrender in a way that you haven't before, to just say, Jesus, I know that you love me no matter what, and I open myself up to that right now. If that's you and you're having a hard time with this, maybe it would help if you prayed this along with me. Jesus, I know that you love me, but it's so hard for me to receive that, and you know exactly why. But Jesus, I want to, and I don't know how. Would you please help me? Would you move towards me as I do my best to move towards you? And would you help me to do that? Jesus, on behalf of all of us here, because your love is for every single person here, I just want to thank you. Thank you for your love. It doesn't always make sense. It kind of baffles us sometimes. Sometimes it's really hard to believe. But we are so thankful that there is nothing we can do to change the fact that you love us so much. And it's with that in mind that we take time out of our night to worship you. Well, coming out of this service, if there's something that God's been stirring in your heart, like, and you're like, man, I just wish I had somebody I could talk to, uh, we want to invite you to head over to our website, just cccgreeley.org. We got a link down below. Uh, And if you go there, you're going to find a little chat box. And on the other side of that chat box, we actually have one of our pastors who is available at almost any hour of the day to be able to talk with you, to be able to connect you to resources, uh, and to just make sure that you don't have to walk through life alone. Um, And so if that'd be something that's helpful for you, please go there. We would love to continue journeying with you. Uh, We also have a discussion guide below if you want to continue to process this more. Uh, But other than that, we are so grateful that you joined us wherever you are today to be a part of this message. And uh, we hope you have a great day.